Everyone, glad that you're here this morning. And now it's the exciting part. We get to get into God's Word. And so if you have your Bibles, turn, if you would, to the book of Philippians. We have made it to chapter 2 this morning. So uh, awesome. So we're going to be looking at the first 11 verses. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Philippians chapter 2, this morning, verses 1 through 11. We will read the first four verses first and then we'll cover the rest of the verses towards the end of the study. But uh, first, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Starting in verse 1, we read the Apostle Paul writing, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. We'll stop there for right now. The time I studied this morning is having a Christ-like attitude. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, to be in your word, knowing, Lord, that you are here in our presence and you desire, Lord, to speak to our hearts. We know, Lord, that you have something to say to each one of us today, this morning, be it a word of correction or comfort or exhortation, whatever it is, Lord, we, uh, Lord, we want to have ears to receive all that you have for us today. So help us to be attentive to your word. Help us to uh, take it for what you're saying to us, Lord, and apply it to our lives. And we also pray, Father, if there's anyone that has joined us that is yet to come into a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ, that they would see their need for him this morning and they would turn from their sin and turn towards our Savior. We thank you for this time. We commit it to you. And it's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. It's a story I found of a little boy who was kind of strutting his stuff in the backyard. And, you know, he had his baseball cap on and he had his baseball bat and, and, and he had a ball. And it was overheard him talking to himself. I am the greatest hitter in the world. And he tossed the ball up into the air and he took a swing and he missed it. Strike one, he says. Undaunted, he picked up that ball again, threw it into the air and said to himself, I am the greatest hitter ever. And he swung the bat at the ball again and missed it again. Strike two. He paused for a moment to examine his bat and ball carefully. Then a third time, he threw the ball into the air. I am the greatest hitter who ever lived, he said. Then he swung the bat hard a third time and cried out, Wow! Strike three. What a pitcher. I'm the greatest pitcher in the world. I like that kid's attitude. He's a type that's going to go far in all that he does. Now that's not to say that all we need to succeed in life is always to have a positive attitude and everything's going to come up roses. But here's the point that the Apostle Paul is making here in Philippians chapter 2. He's showing us how important it is to have the right attitude. And he gives us and he shows us Jesus to look at as we'll close with that. But you see, your relationship with Jesus Christ determines your attitude that you're going to have towards others. I like what Pastor Chuck Swindoll, he says, the remarkable thing is that we have a choice every day regarding the attitude that we embrace for that day. We cannot change our past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. 
The only thing we can do is play on the one string we have, and that is our attitude. I'm convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. And so it is with you. We are in charge of our attitudes. Well, here's Paul, and he's you know, probably didn't spend more than a couple months at a time with this church in Philippi, but during that time, man, that church grew dear to his heart. And he hears that there are some attitudes going on within the church. There's some disunity that's happening. In fact, we will see when we get to chapter 4 that there's two ladies that Paul specifically names that were not getting along with each other. He says, I employ Judea and I employ Sinche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, we don't know what was going on. Maybe they all, one wanted to be in charge of a ministry or one thought the other wasn't doing a good enough job and they could do it better, you know. Uh, we don't know. But just think about this. <laughs> From the time that Paul wrote this, to our day, and all the generations in between, I'd like to have your names go down in history about two women that would never get along with each other. It's like, oh man. I mean, their names are there, Yudia and Sinche. But see, that's why Paul is saying, man, you need to have a change of attitude. And he's calling for unity within the church. Now, one of the amazing things about this section of Scripture is that Paul actually links his own joy with the Philippian church having this unity. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to you, but understand the Apostle Paul, he's in prison. Think about that for a moment. If I were in prison and I'm, you know, chained to a guard 24 hours a day, uh, you know, I was unjustly accused. I was resulted, uh, arrested rather as a result of something that my supposed friends said that I did. I have no comfort. I have no guarantees for the future. What would bring you joy? <laughs> to be released. I mean, that's how I would have started out this chapter. Look at verse 1. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection or mercy, fulfill my joy by getting me out of here. This is horrible. I don't want to be here anymore. That's not what he says. Verse 2. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Paul is saying to them, if you want to bring me comfort, want to bring me joy, then just do these simple things. Now, he prefaced it in verse 1 by giving them five reasons why they should be like-minded and have the same love and be of one accord. In other words, in verse 1, Paul is asking the question that he expects a yes answer to, and verse 2 is the result of that yes answer. Let me read verse 1 in the New Living Translation with this in mind. Paul says, Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Yes, there is. Is there any comfort from His love? Absolutely. Is there any fellowship together in the Spirit? You bet. Are your hearts tender? Yes. Are your hearts compassionate? Yes. So since these things are true, yes, they're true, then be like-minded. Have the same love. Be of one accord. Be of one mind. See, again, your relationship with Jesus determines your attitude that you're going to have towards others. Now, granted, it's a pretty amazing thing to think about if you can get any group of people to actually agree on any one thing. Like the story I found of some folks that visited a zoo which had an ex- ex- exhibit labeled Coexistence. And in this cage was this huge lion and a lamb. Surprised by this, they asked the zookeeper, how is this possible? The zookeeper explained, there's nothing to it. All I have to do is every now and then add a fresh new lambs and it's taken care of. Paul here, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 
is about to tell us how to get along without being eaten alive, and it has everything to do with our attitudes. If you're taking notes, Paul lays out three requirements. He says, number one, harmony. Number two, humility. Number three, helpfulness. Three requirements to Christian unity. Harmony, humility, helpfulness. The first one is harmony. Paul begins with what you might call four-part harmony. As I said already, look at verse 2. He writes, Be like-minded, have the same love, be one accord, and of one mind. That word one accord doesn't mean a Honda. It means to be united in spirit or to be in harmony. Paul desired that the Philippians were living in harmony with each other. Now, if you've ever heard a barbershop quartet, Man, some of them are absolutely amazing. They sing in the four parts. You have the bass, the baritone, the alto, and the tenor. Maybe someone's asked you to sing tenor. Ten or twelve miles away. I don't know. But because you can't sing, you'd ruin the barbershop quartet. That's how it is if you're not in harmony with each other. But when you have four singers together singing with the four parts of harmony, man, it sounds amazing. And that's what Paul is saying here. You need to have four-part harmony. Number one, you need to be like-minded. That's important. That, that's your base. That's what needs to happen. That's your base rhythm. That thing that's got to go together. Then you need to have the same love, number two. Be of one accord, number three. And then number four, be of one mind. Now, in order to be like-minded, we have to, there, there are certain things that we have to agree on. I've said this many times before. I've used this quote. It's attributed to Augustine. In essentials, unity. and non-essentials, liberty. and all things, charity. In essentials, there must be unity. See, on your bulletins, when you came in, and you've looked at this before, you're given our statement of faith here at Calvary Chapel. It describes what we believe, why we believe it. You know, we hold this to be the truth that's taught to us by Scripture. It's what we practice here at the church. These are things that we hold essential to the Christian faith. Now, if you get that out and you're looking at the brief list and you go, oh, nope, don't agree with that. No, I can't agree with that one. No, don't agree with that. It's time for you to find a different church. You know, and actually, I don't think you'd find a different church, a church that would agree. I mean, if it disagreed with that, you shouldn't be going to the church because it wouldn't be a Christian church. But the point is this. There's no spiritual unity without doctrinal oneness. You can't be like-minded and disagree on the essentials. Because what we'll see in chapter 3 is that only not was there a threat to the unity within the church, but there is a threat from outside of the church of the false teachers coming in. So Paul is encouraging them to know what they believe and to be in agreement over it. Peter talks about that in his letter in 1 Peter 3.11 when he says, We should always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. See, there are certain things that, that we must agree on, and there are other things that we can disagree on. King James Version Bible only, or NIV only, you know, sprinkled or dumped, not donuts, baptism, okay? Pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib rapture. If you believe in post-tribulation rapture, we'll explain it to you on the way up, okay? Things that are not essential to our salvation, being saved, uh, I mean, things that rather that are essential to our salvation, being saved by grace alone, through faith alone. The deity of Jesus Christ. He was both God and man. He was supernaturally conceived, born of a virgin. That Jesus is the only way of salvation. We'll look at more of that in a moment later on. But these are the essentials. These are things that we need to be united over in harmony with concerning the basis of our faith. Otherwise, we cannot have unity. 
Because if you don't have, if you're not like-minded in the essentials, then the other three parts, they just, they, they fall apart. But if you have the like-mindedness, everything comes together in harmony. Now this brings us to point number two, the requirement for Christian unity is that humility. Look at verse three. Paul writes, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. I like what someone wrote. He said, humility is like underwear, essential, but indecent if it shows. I mean, it's also been said, humility is the rarest and fairest of all Christian virtues. See, humility is to know who you are and know whose you are. You're nothing apart from Jesus Christ, but you're everything in Christ. And the opposite of humility is what Paul talks about here, selfish ambition and conceit. Paul says that nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. That word selfish ambition is where we get our English word electioneering. We looked at this back in chapter 1, if you recall. It means to canvas for office to get people to support you. It also means to desire to put oneself forward, a partisan and irritable spirit, a self-seeking pursuit of political office by unfair means. Boy, are we not seeing a lot of that lately going on. And we're just in the primaries. The simplest definition of the selfish ambition is to cause division in order to get your own way. So you might assert yourself in a situation. Cause division among people because you have an agenda. Well, I have the answer. You cause the division. Well, I got the answer. That's selfish ambition. It's like the brother and the sister who was at the mall and they were on one of those electrical horses that you put the quarter in and you ride for a few minutes and it goes up and down. And, and he was in the front and his sister was in the back. And, and he got so annoyed with his sister that he turned around and said, if one of us would get off, there would be much more room for me. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. But then he adds, conceit as well. Now, if you happen to have an old King James Version Bible, a 1611 version, uh, I think it really says it better. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. That word conceit is, is vain glory in the Greek. It means empty pride of living for people's opinions. Think about that. It, it's the empty pride of getting up in the morning and living for and going for what people think about you and what they're thinking about you and your accomplishments. Oh, they're thinking about me. All that I've done. Mind you the story of a couple ducks and a frog who lived happily together on a farm pond. Best of friends. They would amuse themselves, play together in the water hole. Well, the summer hot uh, summer days came and it was hot and, and the pond began to dry up and it was evident that they would have to move and this was no problem for the ducks. They could just fly to another pond. But the frog was stuck. So it was decided that they would put a stick in the bill of each of the ducks uh, that the frog could hang onto with his mouth and as they flew to another pond, they would get to the other pond. Well, the plan worked so well, in fact, that as they were flying, a farmer looked up and said, wow, that is amazing. That's clever. I wonder who thought of that idea. Just then the frog said, I did. I did. Did and fall frog on the ground. And you got it? Thank you. Appreciate it. Same reaction, first service. And I was going to cut it out of the notes, but I thought, but it makes the point what I'm trying to say here. <laughs> That's what these people were doing in Philippi, apparently. You know, they were, were jockeying for position. You know, maybe bragging about their accomplishments, touting, you know, their achievements. 
Maybe having that holier-than-now attitude, looking for what people go, oh man, look how good they are. Paul says this Christian, knock it off. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit or vainglory. But then he adds, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. That is humility. Lowliness of mind. Not thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to. He says, esteem others better than you. Esteem others. Wait a minute. What about me? What about my self-esteem? You know, we hear so much about that. The kids are taught it in a very early age in school. You know, self-esteem, it's where it's at. You know, it's all about me. Ah, what I have, what I wear, you know, what I eat. It's all about me. Is it not the major uh, attitude that we see in our world today? I mean, that's why we have Facebook, is it not? To post all about me, what's going on in my life. We tweet, you know, what's going on in my life. We take what? Selfies. It's a, a selfie of me. Then we buy the app that can smooth out your skin and erase the wrinkles and the dark circles under your eyes and make your teeth look as white as can be. And, and some of these apps actually make us look thinner. Then we post it. New profile pic. Then we get the comments. Oh, you look so good. Yeah, thank you very much. Spend hours on Photoshop to look that good, you know. Because we're concerned about self. No, what about me? But Paul says, in lowliness of mind, esteem others better than yourself. You know, humble yourselves. Be aware of what's going on in other people's lives. Don't just look at yourself. In other words, instead of being self-absorbed, live in humility, esteeming others better than yourself. There's a story told of a pastor who was officiating at a funeral. When he was done, he was asked to lead the funeral procession as it made its way to the cemetery. So he got in his car and he started driving at the head of this funeral procession. Well, he flipped on his radio and he became preoccupied and he got lost in thought. And he forgot where he was going. About that time, he passed a Walmart and thought about something he needed to pick up. So he turned into the parking lot as he's looking for a space. It just so happened he glanced into his rearview mirror and saw a string of cars following behind him with their lights on. I thought, oh man, that's horrible. Self-absorbed and then so humbled. Man, he learned the hard way. Listen, the way to success, according to the Bible, is through humility. The way to self-fulfillment is thinking of others first. The way up is down, according to God's Word. If you begin to put people into the center, uh, and put other people in the center of your universe, they will put you into the center of theirs. And then, and then there's unity. Which leads to the third prerequisite for unity, and that's the attitude of helpfulness. Look at verse 4. Again, Paul says, Let each of you look not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Again, there's so much emphasis today on self-love and self-worth and self-image and self-esteem. How different that is than what the Scripture teaches. We're to look to help others. We're to encourage one another. We're to be looking out for each other. You know, I hardly ever hear when I do marriage counseling, how couples are so happy in their marriage. You say, well, of course, they're coming in for marriage counseling. Why wouldn't they be? Well, well even so, one of the common things that, that I come across whenever there's conflict is that usually one or both sides are strictly thinking about their own needs. So if, I can, if I ask a husband and a wife to write down what they think they need in a marriage, man, they can fill up a couple of sheets of paper with their own needs. But if I ask them to write down what their partner needs in the marriage... 
There's usually silence. There's usually a scratching of the head. Do you know what the needs are for your partner now? I mean, do you really know? Or would your list be a list of, of things that you hope that they are? For example, husbands, what would you say that your wife's needs are? Well, she's got this need to cook for me and, and she's got this need to have this great supper for me every night and, and have it ready when I come home and, and then she needs to, you know, she needs to, she needs to greet me with this great big wet juicy kiss and just stare silently with these goo goo eyes at me all night long as I watch baseball. That may be your needs, but I tell you, that's not your wife's needs. Or, or your wife's, what would you say your husband's needs are? Well, he needs to take me out to dinner. That's what he needs to do. And, and then he, when we come home, he needs to put the kids in bed. And then, you know, we need to spend the rest of the evening talking, expressing our feelings with each other. Okay, that might be your needs, not his. I think if we played the old newlywed game and had each one make up a list of the wife's needs and marriage, would your list agree? Or you know, your husband's needs, would they agree? Now, this is so much greater than, than just marriage to those folks. Paul is talking about people in the church getting along with each other. When you have a conflict with any other person, how do, do you stop and, and, and do you think, well, what is this person needing right now? Instead of me being upset with this person, what is going on in their life where I can help them? What, what do they need? What, are they, what difficulty are, are, are they going through? It's putting others ahead of you. Now, how does, this work, work, how does this work practically? Well, maybe you've done this before. You know, you get out of your car here at the church and, and guys, you're walking up, you're, you're the head of your family and, and you get to the church doors and, and it's got the one-way glass and it's a mirror and you kind of look at yourself and you kind of fix your hair if you have hair and, you know, you kind of, you know, fix your shirt a little bit and you come into the building and you're there, you know. But you don't really notice your wife behind you. Okay, the wind has blown her hair all over the place. She's got the Bibles in her hand. She's trying to get the kids in and she's holding the Bibles and she's trying to make sure she looks halfway presentable. You walk in and the usher says, welcome to Calvary Chapel. You say, thanks. Hey, you know. Then your wife comes in behind you. Hey, welcome to Calvary Chapel. Leave me alone. I've got windblown hair. You know, I'm dropping the Bibles and my kids just took off downstairs. Listen, man, are you really considering others better than yourself? Are you being helpful? Because again, I think when you have that attitude of helpfulness, you're going to find that your needs are going to be ministered to. Because it's catching. That attitude is catching. So, unity through harmony and what we believe. Humbleness in action is putting others before yourself, which leads to helpfulness, caring for the needs of others. And as a result, you'll have an inward affection towards each other and not a wrong attitude of pride or, or self-righteousness. So that when you do come to church, you know, it's not just, hey, how you doing? Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm fine, you know. No, it's not that kind of thing. It's like, how you doing? Well, man, I could really use your prayer. Well, now let's sit down. Let's pray together. How, how can I pray for you? How can I help you? And maybe you share a scripture, something to encourage them. Is there anything else I can do for you? Well, that person walks away lifted up because you, you stop for them and you walk away encouraged because you got a chance to pray with them. That's what unity in the church brings. Believers praying for one another, seeking to help one another, looking out for each other's person's interests. That's the attitude that God calls us to have. Our focus, our attitude, it should be on things that matter. See, if there is that unity and harmony, unity and humbleness, then there will be that unity and helpfulness. It's the result of the first two. And finally, Paul brings us all together by pointing us back to Jesus, who is the greatest example of those three things. In other words, if you want to have an attitude of harmony, 
and humility and helpfulness, then all you need to do is to look to Jesus Christ. He's a perfect example we see clearly in the next six verses. Look at verses 5 through 8 now. Paul writes, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. It says, let this mind be in you which is also in Christ Jesus. The mind of Christ means the attitude. Let the same attitude that Christ had be your attitude as well. Which are the same three points that we already looked at. Harmony, humility, and helpfulness. Harmony. Jesus was in perfect harmony with the Father and the Father's will. He wasn't as equal with the Father. Being in the form of God did not consider robbery to be equal with God. Humility. Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Helpfulness. He made a way of salvation to whosoever would call upon the name of the Lord. Listen, those three things are what we see in Jesus. And I want to look at those three things uh, more closely and then we're we're going to close. Number one, harmony. As I said already, we know when Jesus walked this earth, he was in perfect harmony with his Father. In fact, he said, I always do those things that please the Father. But it's more than that. Look at verse 6 again. It says, Who, being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God. Now follow me on this. Jesus never became God. That's important to know. He was God before he was born in the manger of Bethlehem. He remained God after he walked this earth. And of course, after he was resurrected and ascended, he was and is and will always be God. His deity was pre-human, pre-earthly, pre-Bethlehem, pre-Mary. He was always God, even in his mother's womb. Jesus never for a moment ceased to be God Almighty. And just as there is no spiritual unity or harmony without doctrinal oneness, there can be no unity with God without firmly believing that Jesus is who he claimed to be, God in the flesh. See, it all comes down to who Jesus is. Let me give you a few examples what other religions teach. Buddhism. Buddhists believe that Jesus was a good teacher. Less important, however, than Buddha. It teaches that absolute truth is an illusion. In fact, there was a man, an English Buddhist, Maurice Walsh, he pointed out that the Buddhist view of Buddha is quite different than the Christian view of Christ. He says Buddha is a teacher, not a savior. That's a little bit different than what the Bible teaches, right? Just, just a little bit, I would say. How about Hindus? Hindus believe that Jesus was just one of many incarnations or sons of God. Hinduism teaches Christ was not the Son of God. He is no more divine than any other man, and he did not die for man's sins. Hinduism teaches God is everything, and everything is God. Okay, that's, that's pretty different than what the Bible teaches. How about Muslims? Islam? They believe that Jesus Christ was only a man. How they do, do believe that he was a prophet, equal to Adam, Noah, or Abraham, but below Muhammad in importance. To them, Jesus is known as a prophet Esau, and they also believe that Christ did not die for man's sin. In fact, Muslims believe that Judas died on the cross, not Jesus. Pretty different than what the Bible teaches, right? Let's take the Jehovah Witnesses. They believe that Jesus was God's first creation, before he was conceived in Mary and became a man, he was Michael the archangel. He became Michael upon his resurrection, which was not physical but spiritual and immaterial. 
Yeah, a little bit different than what the Bible teaches. How about Mormonism? They teach that Jesus was the firstborn child of the Heavenly Father. For instance, the Latter-day Saint leaders will say Jesus is the Son of God, the only begotten Son of the flesh. You think, well, that, that sounds right. Sounds like what I believe. But you've got to understand, they're talking about a different Jesus. Just like, you know, five guys can all have the name John. You've got to know which John you're talking about, you're referring to. So when the Mormons speak of Jesus, it's not the Jesus of the New Testament. Mormon theology says Jesus is one God among many. Mormons believe that if you are a faithful Mormon, one day you'll become a God. You know, Mormons believe teaching is as man is, God once was. They also believe that the virgin birth involved a physical union between God the Father and Mary, a physical union. And Mormons also believe that Jesus and Lucifer were brothers, spirit brothers. Way different than what the Bible teaches. Last one, Scientologists believe that Jesus was a good man who achieved, quote, a high level of spiritual awareness, but he didn't attain the highest level possible by Scientologists today. Tom Cruise has said, we are the authorities on the mind, we are the way to happiness, we can bring peace and unite cultures, now is the time. Tom, you're wrong. Sorry about that. What does the Bible say? Jesus Christ was the unique Son of God, not, God be, not man becoming God, that's impossible, but God becoming man. The Bible teaches that, that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He was supernaturally conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, not as a union between God and Mary. He was not merely a good teacher, but the greatest teacher ever, God in human form. The Bible teaches that Jesus was not one God among many, but he was the only God equal with the Father and above all others. And it was Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father except to me. So Paul clearly states, Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God. See, in order to have harmony with God, you and I must believe that Jesus is God. We must believe that. Jesus said in, in John eight twenty four, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Take in the name of God for himself, the I am. Now this brings us even more so to point number two, humility and what we see in Jesus. Look at verse 7. Jesus made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of man, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Knowing that Jesus is God, all-powerful, almighty, could do whatever he wanted, he humbled himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross. I said, we, we can't even begin to fathom how horrific the cross was. Now those in whom Paul is writing to, they understood it because at that time thousands upon thousands of people were crucified by the Romans. In fact, when Titus sacked Jerusalem, he crucified so many people, there were no trees left. People were just hanging on the crosses left, left and right. So when you talk about a man being crucified, uh, uh, they knew what they were talking about. It was torturous. It was humiliating. It was not designed just to bring about mere death. It was designed to prolong the pain, to bring complete humiliation. And it was a warning to anyone who would dare defy the power of Rome. And yet Jesus willingly, humbly allowed himself to be crucified. I mean, at any given moment, he could have said, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. But he didn't do that. Why? Because we needed help. We needed a Savior. We needed forgiveness. And the only way for that to happen is for Jesus Christ to die. The Bible says, why were we yet sinners? Christ died for us. And that's the third thing that we see displayed with Jesus, the helpfulness. You see, 
Paul says he came in an appearance as a man. That tells us something about the way Jesus lived this life on this earth. About his characteristics. For example, Jesus got tired like we do. You know, when he met the woman at the well, you recall that we were told that he was weary. Why was he weary? Well, because he'd been walking a lot in the hot Judean sun. Jesus just didn't float from place to place, you know, and then suddenly appear and disappear. He did that after the resurrection, but, but not before. It wasn't like that. He humbled himself. He walked with them. He got his, his feet dirty like everyone else. Now, if I was Jesus, of course, at that time, I, I would have said, okay, I'm going to go on to Jerusalem. Uh, when you guys get there, you'll see me when I'm there. Poof, and I'll just show up there, you know, and be there. And, hey, guys, I've been waiting for you. Jesus never did that. He walked among them. Jesus knew what it was like to experience physical hunger. Remember when he fasted in, in the desert, in the wilderness, where you read that uh, he was hungry. I mean, here was a, a man who had the power to perform a miracle for his own benefit if he wanted to. But, you know, Jesus never did that. He never performed any miracles for his own benefit. There's no self-centeredness there. He was always looking on the needs of others more than himself. In fact, even when the devil came to him in the wilderness, he said, why don't you turn this rock into a piece of bread? He could have very easily done that. In fact, he could have done more than that. piece of bread, I'll turn it into filet mignon, a little bit of baked potato on the side. And, you know. In fact, he had foreknowledge. So he could have come up with something that was even, you know, not there at the time. He could have had an In-N-Out burger, you know, there. you want something really good. We know Jesus also experienced physical weakness after being scourged by Pilate and acknowledged what a, Pilate acknowledged what a strong man he was. He says, behold the man. We know that Jesus had to carry his own cross and fell beneath the weight of it. Why? Because the cross was heavy. He was like us. He was overwhelmed by him. Yeah, he, for a time, a man named Simon Isreen carried it, but, but, but it was hard for him. Jesus also experienced physical thirst. As he hung on the cross, remember one of his statements was, I thirst. Now, he could have spoken just one word and, and, and a fountain would have gushed out from the ground, but he never did anything like that. He also knew anger. He had human emotion. Remember the money changes in the temple. He was angry. He threw them out with a whip, overturned their tables. It was righteous indignation. Yet at the same time, little children were attracted to him and wanted to be with them. Jesus felt deep sorrow. Remember the tomb of Lazarus. We read that those two words that Jesus wept. His heart was broken because he saw what sin had done to humanity and how death entered in. He wept. Now maybe he wept because poor Lazarus was going to have to be dragged out of heaven back to earth again. You know, felt bad for him. I bring all these things up because there are some people who say, listen, how can Jesus help me? He doesn't know what I'm going through. He doesn't know what it's like to, to, to face these things that I'm tempted with. He doesn't know what it's like to face these pressures that I'm dealing with. He doesn't know what I'm going through. You bet he does. He's been there. He's experienced it more probably than what you or I would ever have to go through. That's why he can help us. We're told in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, in the New Living Translation, this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. And then we read in Hebrews 2.18, since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. See, we have the example of Jesus. Harmony with God the Father. Humility, humble himself and going through the cross. Why? To help us. Whatever we need, he is there for us. 
as I said in the beginning of the study, your relationship with Jesus determines your attitude towards others. We will have harmony with each other as long as you have a right understanding of who Jesus is. Jesus is God. There's no waving on that issue. We'll have unity with each other as long as we have humility. Like Jesus, found in the appearance of man, humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And we'll be helpful because of all that Jesus has helped us. Jesus went through so much, and so we need to look out not for our own interests, but also for the interest of others. Could you imagine what it would be like, how different a world would be if we actually applied these principles in our lives? We actually had these attitudes. Let's start with our marriage. Let's say, say for one week, I'm going to do the very best of my ability. I'm going to have the right attitude. I'm going to love my wife or my husband in such a way that I'm actually going to put their needs above my own. I'm going to try to please them more than, than I please myself. It's going to be hard. Say you do it. And you know what? Much to your surprise, a week later, you've been totally taken advantage of. You know, and you're, no, just kidding. <laughs> what you discover is by putting the needs of your mate above your own, you're going to be much more fulfilled. Why? Because it's catching. Man, if you're going to be wanting to do friends. They go, man, look at what they're doing for me. I want to outdo them. I'm going to show them more love. I'm going to put their needs ahead of mine. And you can't outgive each other when it comes to that. Man, that's the way to live. Why? Because these are principles that God has given us in Scripture. Now, let me say this. I don't stand up here as I preach this thing saying, I've, I've mastered all these things. I've got it down. You want to see a perfect example? Look at me. I say, no. You look past me. Okay, look past me. Look to Jesus. Because even though I try to do these things, even though I aspire to live this way, I fall short just like you do. But I can change my attitude. You can change your attitude. And we could look to live out these principles after seeing what Jesus has done for all of us. See, He gives us the power to do that, to live for Him. See, we're not talking about imitation. We're talking about impartation. Because listen, you're going you're gonna to fail. I mean, don't forget that the, the book of Philippians was written to believers. It was written to, to Christians. These are not words for the world to live by. These are words written to followers of Jesus Christ. And so when I say impartation, not invitation, I mean by that it's the only way that I can be do these things is through the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of me, God working and moving inside of me. In other words, He comes and lives inside of me and forgives me of my sin, and I have now new desires as a result. I'm born again. I have that new nature. So I walk in the Spirit. I'm not fulfilling those lusts of the flesh that as Galatians 5 tells us. So I can't do these things on my own. We need uh, the Lord. You know, I can't love unlovable people. I can't love people that I can love people that I like. I can get along with those people, but, but the ones I don't like, I have a hard time. This is something that, that we need God's help with. You know, it's hard to reach out to someone and not think about yourself. We need God's help. That's why it's impartation. Now, why do we, we do this? Well, here's why. Look at verses 9 through 11, and then we're going to close. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's the simple fact here as we close. Sooner or later, everybody is going to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. 
Now you, you might tell, well, you, you Christians might, but, but I'm not me. I'm an atheist. I got news for you, buddy. <laughs> You're going to bow too. Everyone will eventually bow. Everyone. That's what the Bible says. That's what that verse teaches here. And here's the choice that you have. You can either bow now and confess your sins and be forgiven, or you're going to bow later and acknowledge what is obvious, but then it's going to be too late. By now, it's going to be a choice. By then, it's going to be by command. Right now, you have a choice of the matter. You can choose to bow. I choose to bow to Jesus. Or you can leave here and say, I'm not going to bow. I'm not going to do what I'm going to do what I want to do. Listen, you're going to bow later. When you stand before Almighty God on that final day, you will bow. You will say, Jesus Christ is Lord. And you say, well, I'll just do it then. Well, here's the problem. It's too late. It's too late. It'll be an acknowledgement in that final day, but it's not something you did willfully on this side of heaven. It's something that, you, that you're going to do when you stand before God. See, you need to do it now. You need to do it now. I mean, would you like to meet the living Jesus? Would you like to meet the one who can give you the power to change your attitude? The one who humbled himself and died upon that cross. The one who experienced pain and sorrow and cares about you. Then you need to humble yourself and admit your need for him and turn from your sin. In fact, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7, Humble yourselves under the mighty power of God and, and at the right time he will lift you up in honor. Give all your worries and cares to God for he cares about you. See what he's saying here? If we change our attitude, change our heart, Get a whole new outlook on Christ. He will give you that joy in place of sorrow. He'll give you that fulfillment in place of emptiness. He'll give you purpose in place of aimlessness. Best of all, He's going to give you heaven instead of hell. I mean, if you just come to Him today. If you'd like to do that as soon as service is over, the elders are up front as they are every Sunday. We'd love to pray with you and give you a Bible and help you know what it means to follow Jesus Christ. To the rest of us, harmony, humility, and helpfulness. We look to Jesus Christ and these things that we apply in our lives with those attitudes and we're going to watch God do some amazing things in our own lives personally and as a church corporately. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time this morning, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it doesn't return void, that it is truth and it is truth that we can apply to our lives, Lord. It's truth that we have unity over, Lord, these essentials of the Christian faith. Lord, we are in unity over that. You are our God. You are our King. You are our Savior. Lord, we know that as a result of that, everything else plays, falls into place. Lord, we're humbled at all what you have done for us upon that cross, Lord. And, and because of that, Lord, how could we not have unity with one another? Lord, we look at what you've done for us in, in giving us salvation, forgiving us of our sins. Lord, how could we not want to help others who desperately need salvation? Lord, help us as believers to go out this week, Lord, and to put into practice what we've studied, Lord. To look at others as better than ourselves. To help others. Lord, to be used by you to bring you glory and honor and praise. That's our prayer this morning. And so empower us by your Holy Spirit. Give us that impartation, Lord, of your Spirit that we might glorify and honor you with our lives. Thank you for this time this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand and we'll do one.